This is the Cancer Radio Network. Coming up on this episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. There are absolutely people being diagnosed with terminal cancer today who are going to give, live long enough for a cure. Absolutely. You know, um, stage four colon cancer, um, you know, five year prognosis is, is, is now survival rates like up near 20%. So, you know, there are definitely people today getting diagnosed with these terminal cancers who are going to live long enough for a cure. Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, offering stories of information, inspiration, and hope to those affected by colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode 82 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. And this is the last episode before Christmas. Hard to believe that uh, Christmas is just a couple of weeks away and that uh, we at the Colon Cancer Podcast, I say we, let's call it what it is, me, uh, have just completed the uh third year of of the podcast. We started in 2015, and we'll be actually celebrating our third anniversary come February, and uh, we've got some exciting things planned to celebrate our third anniversary. Stay tuned for that. But because it's the holidays, I think it's important to acknowledge that for many of us, patients, survivors, and caregivers, the holidays presents its own unique set of challenges, particularly on the emotional side. So again, I want to remind our listeners of the wonderful uh, opportunities for support through the Colorectal Cancer Alliance's online chat groups that are available for you. And you can find these on the website at ccalliance.org and click on the link that says support and then follow that link to online support where you can find uh, the uh, sorted chat groups that are available to you. There's the daily online chat from noon to 1 p.m. Eastern time. There's a chat specific to us stage four folks that takes place on Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. Eastern time. There's a caregiver chat. There's a grief chat. So whichever uh, topic is of importance to you, uh, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Uh, the chat group was uh, how I got through my initial diagnosis almost seven years ago. I virtually just stumbled upon the daily online chat and made some wonderful connections. There were days that uh, those sessions were filled with uh, support and information. There were days where the chat was just fun and silly and it just kind of went with the flow. But uh, most importantly, it was all about support. So if you need someone to talk to, you need someone to connect with, uh, the Colorectal Cancer Alliance's online support uh, chat groups is something I highly, highly recommend. If you have an ostomy or are undergoing chemotherapy, you know at times it can be a struggle to stay hydrated. That's where H2ORS can help. 
H2ORS is an oral rehydration solution, which is an over-the-counter electrolyte drink mix for dehydration. H2ORS is a medically accepted alternative to IV hydration, so for those of you who are struggling to stay hydrated due to an ostomy or chemotherapy, H2ORS can help replenish your fluid and electrolyte levels. It has three times the electrolytes of most sports drinks without the excess sugar, artificial flavors, or artificial colors. If you would like to try a free sample of H2ORS, go to h2ors.com sample and they'll ship one out to you. No strings or hidden costs attached. Also, when you make your first purchase at h2ors.com, if you use the code CCPOD, you will get 10% off your first order. No events uh, left to talk about this year for any of the, um, you know, runs and walks and those kinds of things. The next undie run walk for the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, uh, and always the first stop each year, is in my hometown of Tampa, Florida, and that's coming up on Saturday, February the 3rd, 2018, at Al Lopez Park. You can find more information about the Tampa Undie, as well as other cities where the Undie Run Walk will be taking place, again, on the Colorectal Cancer Alliance website. Now, there's another really interesting uh, event coming up this spring I want you to put on your calendar. It's, it's not too early, but it is taking place on Tuesday, March the 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And this is a Twitter chat. Uh, this is a, a collaboration between the Colon Cancer Coalition and the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation, who will be co-hosting an early onset Twitter chat. This is in advance of the Colon Cancer Challenge Foundation's Early Age Onset Summit that's being held in New York City in April of 2018. And the goal here is to engage survivors and providers and caregivers and nonprofit organizations together through an online Twitter chat around young onset colorectal cancer. So mark this date, more information to come on this. I'll be sharing more details as we get a little bit closer to the event. And if you're saying Twitter, I don't do Twitter, uh, I would encourage you to, to venture into Twitter. Uh, I think personally, I think Twitter gets a bad rap and like any social media site and really anything in life, there's always positives and negatives, but I've made some wonderful connections. I've made some deep friendships that really all started on Twitter. Uh, the, I think the biggest challenge that I find with people is I don't know what to say. And my advice to you is don't say anything for a while. Find a few people who, uh, Talk about a topic of interest to you. I got involved in Twitter because I'm a sports fan, so I started following some sports writers and wanted to read their articles and posts. So perhaps you're into, I don't know, gourmet cooking. Find some celebrity chefs who have a Twitter presence and just follow them and read their articles and see what they're talking about. You don't have to tweet. You don't have to say anything. But that's a good way to stick your toe in the pool, so to speak, and get comfortable with Twitter. And uh, and then before you know it, you'll be ready to engage in this upcoming Twitter chat on March the 27th. My guest this week 
came to me via a previous guest. Uh, shout out and deep thank you to my new friend, Dr. Andrew Albert out of Chicago. If you missed my interview with Dr. Albert, you can go back and listen to that at thecallingcancerpodcast.com forward slash 079. But Dr. Albert said, you need to talk to uh, Matthew Dons. And Matthew is uh, from the UK, and you'll quickly pick that up from his accent, and is living in Japan. And Matthew has been diagnosed, uh, his word, with terminal colorectal cancer. So we had a very open and frank conversation about uh, his uh, diagnosis, his treatment, and his view of his future. And what I also found interesting was the comparison between healthcare, particularly cancer treatment, comparing the US, the UK, and Japan. And I think you'll find this interesting as well. He went into quite a bit of detail. This is one of our longer podcast interviews, and I think you'll get a lot of great information out of this. And I really appreciated Matthew taking the time uh, to share his story with me on the podcast. So join me now for my conversation with Matthew Dons. Matthew, welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining me. I should say good morning, because even though it's evening here in the states, you're in you're in Japan, so you are uh, the distinction of being the first guest residing in Japan in Japan that has been on the Colon Cancer Podcast. Thank you. Well, it's um yep nine thirty in the morning here. I'm in a kind of far far edge of Western Tokyo, just next to Yokohama, and uh, yeah, bright sunny day here. So. So uh, you were introduced to me by a recent guest, and that was Dr. Andrew Albert, who I just had on recently. He was episode 79, and he reached out to me and said, Matthew is a guy that you need to talk to. And his exact words to me were, he has inspired me. <laughs> it's, it's very kind where of do, Andrew where, to say that. Where do you... Where, yeah, well, I thought he was an amazing guy to begin with, but why? Where do you think that came from? What 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 made him reach out to me to tell to say that about so, you? So I've only known Andrew for um, I guess probably over a month now. You know, we've never met; we just know each other from um, from the internet. And I found Andrew because he was um, posting in some uh, ca cancer Facebook groups that I was in. And um, okay, he was saying he wanted to raise awareness for colon cancer. And unfortunately, the way the posts were written, um, some people were a bit skeptical of that. So, you know, as you know, with, with cancer, we have both um, fake doctors and fake patients. Um, many of both, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so I was a bit skeptical. And, you know, um, but I, I checked him online and, you know, seemed to be a, a legitimate doctor. Um, not, you know, he's not an oncologist, but he's a, a gastrointestinal MD. And, um, yeah, we just, we just got, got chatting. And, um, I think that, yeah, maybe he was kind of surprised that I knew quite a lot about cancer. I, I'm always surprised how little cancer patients know about cancer. Um, particularly people with terminal cancer like me. Uh, I think that, you know, cancer is, is, um, so it's an incredibly serious disease that's probably going to kill us. So it makes sense to really learn as as much as you can. So I think 
yeah, that, that was the, the main thing. Um, and I guess, you know, it's also interesting when you're in the American medical system, you know, the American medical system is, is very American. It's very inward looking, very insular. And um, it's therefore kind of interesting to get, you know, an outside perspective. Um, in my case, I was diagnosed in the UK, um, but I was, because I've lived in Japan sort of off and on for quite a while, I had the option of being treated in, in Japan. So I'm I'm familiar with both the, the British way of, of dealing with cancer and, you know, now the, now the Japanese way. So, yeah, I think that, that was why we sort of connected well. Um, yeah, and obviously, you know, I'm, as someone dying of colon cancer, I'm very keen to raise awareness, particularly um, awareness of screening, which is, is what, I, you know, and Andrew is really focused on at the moment. How do the uh, medical uh, communities and, and the approach to treatment differ between the UK and Japan? So, you know, in, in the UK, we have universal health care. So that means free health care for everyone. Um, and we have the <clears throat> what's called the MDT system. That's the multidisciplinary team system. So when you are diagnosed with you know, very serious disease like cancer, um, although you're, you're meeting uh, a doctor, you're meeting what we call a consultant, which usually means a, an oncological doctor or a surgeon, your case is being discussed by a team who meets sort of maybe once or twice a week at your hospital. And that team, so for example, in colon cancer, that would be uh, an oncologist, a surgeon, a radiographer, um, maybe a colorectal nurse, you know, there'd be this, this team of people making decisions um, and about how you're going to be treated. Um, in Japan, generally, hospitals don't have that kind of team system. Um, in Japanese culture, uh, doctors are quite high up in the hierarchy. And um, yeah, the, the, the concept of a second opinion is actually quite new in Japan. So um, also, unlike the UK in Japan, you know, we're, we're free to go to any hospital we want. We can just sort of choose any hospital in the country. We can go and see as many doctors as we like. Whereas in, in the UK, you have to go to your, your local hospital. So in some ways, the Japanese system is much more flexible. Um, in Japan, there's a very, um, there's a very heavy emphasis on safety in medicine. Um, so I was quite surprised when I first was talking to my immunotherapist here, I asked him, you know, how many patients had died as a result of the immunotherapy at his clinic in, you know, over the past 20 years. And he said zero, which I was quite surprised by because I, I knew in the US there'd been, you know, quite a lot of deaths with immunotherapy. But in, in Japan, there's a real emphasis on, you know, how, how can you minimize the side effects of the medicine and particularly how can you minimize uh, treatment-related deaths so that's quite interesting. So, so a very um, practical example of that would be for colon cancer, there's a molecular targeted therapy called Avastin. Um, I think the other name is Bevacizumab, maybe it's the non-commercial name. And in mm -hmm. Japan, when you're, you're treated with Avastin, the first time you do it, it's a, a drip taking 90 minutes. And then they would, if that's okay, then next time we'll go down to 60 minutes and then the next time we'll go to 30 minutes. Whereas in the US, you generally be given that as a 15 minute drip, um, which is great because it's only 15 minutes, but 
the, the, the chance of adverse effects is you know a lot higher. Um, so yeah, the approaches are quite different here. Uh, it's pretty interesting. You don't hesitate to use the phrase, Matthew, that you're dying of colon cancer. What exactly, what, when, how long since you were diagnosed and, um, you know, where are you at right now in terms of the uh, metastasis of the disease and how you're okay, being Okay, so treated? I was diagnosed in, I think, July 2016, so sort of about 14, 15 months ago. And uh, I didn't have any symptoms, you know, like about half of people diagnosed with colon cancer have no symptoms at the time of diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, That was me. And it was just, I, I had got sick on an airplane, you know, I, I had picked up a chest infection. I uh, went to local doctor in the UK, got some antibiotics for the chest infection, got a very bad reaction from the antibiotics. The doctor's a bit suspicious, ordered blood tests, chest x-rays, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, blood tests showed some anemia, and uh, I was recommended to have a colonoscopy. So I, I should point out I was 36 at the time, uh, just turned 38. So, yeah, co the colonoscopy found a um, 45 centimeter tumor in my sigmoid colon which i guess that's two two and a bit inches in your interesting american measurement mm -hmm. system <laughs> and um <laughs> and you know the, the the endoscopist said it was absolutely the last thing he expected to find in someone 36 years old um <clears throat> i had expected to you know to find some polyps and get them removed during the colonoscopy and you know be fine a few days later to go on on holiday with my family we'd all planned a, a week-long holiday together on a greek island and now at the time he didn't say it was cancer he you know presumably suspected um not just that it was cancer but that it was a late stage of cancer uh there was another doctor or possibly colorectal nurse in the room at the time and she said you know we'll, we'll send these biopsies off to the lab and worst case scenario for this cancer, you know, we'll whip out the tumor. You might have some follow-up chemo and, uh, you know, you'll have your regular CT scans. And in five years time or whatever, you'll be given the all clear. So a few days later, I got the biopsy results that, yes, it was cancer. So I had the CT scan uh, probably a week and a half after the colonoscopy. <laughs> CT scan confirmed it was terminal cancer because um, it had spread to my liver with six tumors in the liver, the largest being 75 millimeters. So that is, um, what's that, three and a half inches, I guess, a bit more. Yeah. Approximately, yeah. And also there was um, a tumor or what looked like a tumor and also irregular thickening on the peritoneum. I'd never heard of the peritoneum. It's a membrane that you know covers the abdomen. So then had a PET scan that confirmed the tumor on the peritoneum. So I was diagnosed with what's sometimes called stage five colon cancer. Um, so stage five is is yeah the the colon cancer that spreads to the peritoneum. And the reason it's called stage five is that unfortunately the um, 
you know, the outlook for colon cancer once it's on your peritoneum is, is extremely poor. Um, the word used in the medical literature is dismal. <laughs> so in, in the UK, colon cancer is, is classed as um, this word eminently treatable. So in a colon cancer, is, it's one of the very few cancers where if you have stage four cancer, colon cancer that's only spread to your liver or only spread to some lymph nodes, that can be treated with curative intent. It's one of, one of the very few cancers um, where they can actually, in, in some cases, cure stage four cancer. Unfortunately, once it's in your peritoneum, this membrane, it's um, yeah, very, very hard to treat because uh, the, it seems that chemotherapy agents don't get into the peritoneum very well. There's a poor blood supply to the tumours there. Uh, another problem is that the tumours on the peritoneum don't show up well on scans. So they don't show up well for two reasons. One is the tumours tend to be flat. Um, and scans can only really show things that are sort of 3D because of, of the quantum effects that you know, are used for the different scanning methodologies. And another problem is that with the peritoneum, you usually get many, many small tumours across that membrane, and, and those will be you know, less than half an inch. And uh, you know, a CT scan can see things about... Um, 10 millimeters and bigger, which is yeah, just under half an inch. PET scan, about eight millimeters. So, um, yeah, basically when, you know, a couple of weeks after, <laughs> after I got sick on an airplane, I was told I had, you know, very, very severe terminal cancer. Um, and yep, yeah, straight in, you know, being advised to sort of pursue palliative care, but being told that, yeah, chemotherapy doesn't really work very well. Um, you know, some listeners will be familiar with the uh, what's sometimes called the mother of all surgeries, HIPEC, which is one potential mm -hmm. way of treating um, colon cancer. But that's uh, still a very controversial surgery for for you know a whole bunch of technical reasons. So quite quickly, yeah, I had to accept the fact that you know this cancer is going to kill me relatively soon. Um, it's it's hard to know the prognosis for people with with peritoneal um, dissemination. Generally, the figure given with with good systemic chemotherapy is sort of seven to nine months. Um, some figures coming out now seem to be about maybe fifteen months. You know, th these figures are always um, a they're they're very very um, general, so hopefully they don't apply specifically to me. <laughs> Um, and B, the, you know, the figures are always improving as well. So, yeah, you know, I've had to just accept that, you know, death is coming pretty soon. Um, but on the other hand, kind of fight as, as long and as hard as I can. You've clearly done quite a bit of research. You're not uh, taking a passive approach to this, are you? Yeah, so I think that... You know, it's important to understand the concept of uh, what in the US is called standard of care. So standard of care is basically the, the protocol that doctors will generally follow for a, a given disease. But when you have terminal cancer, by definition, we know that standard of care results in your death. <laughs> we, we, we know that um, for people with, with terminal cancer, you know, chemotherapy is, is not curative. And generally, yep, surgery, radiation therapy are not going to be curative. On the other hand, 
you know, we have to understand that there are absolutely people being diagnosed with terminal cancer today who are going to give live long enough for a cure. Absolutely, you know, um, stage four colon cancer. Um, you know, five year prognosis is 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 now survival rates are like up near twenty percent. So, you know, there are definitely people today getting diagnosed with these terminal cancers who are going to live long enough for a cure. And on the other hand, um, to prove that something is curative, minimum of five years of research and tracking. So for someone diagnosed with terminal cancer, you don't necessarily have that five years to wait. You know, when you when you read in in the media, you hear in the media about um, you know potential new cancer treatment, and we know that you know it might take five five years if they're doing a phase three clinical trial if it's preclinical research realistic you're looking at 10 years even now until that's a real treatment so particularly you know if you have terminal cancer i think it's really important to um yeah do your study look at all the best possible science you know science-based treatments um just kind of about a couple of weeks after i was diagnosed with terminal cancer i met a friend who's a very smart computer scientist, and he told me that there are still some people alive now who were in the first wave of HIV. And he said that, you know, there are a few people who responded to the those initial treatments that just maybe gave them an extra year to live. And out of those few people, most died, but a few, you know, a few of them lived that extra year long enough for a new treatment. And they've sort of kind of ridden this wave of new treatments coming. And each each treatment has given them a, a few years. And now, you know, HIV can, um, ascent, you know, not necessarily be cured, but essentially um, with multi, those multi-drug treatments, people, you know, with HIV in a, in a so-called developed country now, they can be expected to live a normal um, lifespan. You know, HIV is not going to kill them generally. Um, that's amazing if you think of, you know, it's only 30 years ago when, uh, yep, it was almost an endemic. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, and I've interviewed many people on this show, and I'm going to include myself in that group because it'll be seven years in March when I was diagnosed. And, you know, we're hoping that the next step is that cancer is more of a chronic illness that uh, we live with and yet live live a long time with um i i know that's something you're hoping for but uh, you know it's just a matter of 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 the timing i suppose uh so what what treatment are you undergoing uh, at the present time so um my standard treatment in japan so i had surgery last august sigmoid colon removed and then i started the standard chemotherapy of, of Folfox, so that's 5-FU plus oxaloplatin. And the molecular target therapy was, um, I think it's called Vectabix panitumumab. And after a few rounds of that, I stopped the um, Vectabix because it gave me a terrible skin rash, which of course the oncologist was uh, delighted by because the, the, the skin rash correlates with mm -hmm. a good response for that, that class of... Um, right molecular target therapy and also the oxaloplatin i stopped that i didn't like that at all because that's the one that gives you the uh, the infamous peripheral nerve damage so you get the uh 
the, you know, all, oh, yes. all, all that horrible Neur- yeah, neuropathy. The neuropathy in your arms and legs and particularly your mouth. And, and yeah. um, But in parallel to that, I've been um, crowdfunding medical treatment. So I've been having some immunotherapy. I have two types of immunotherapy. Um, both are autologous um, adoptive cell therapies. So that means it's immunotherapy that's made with your own blood. So it's different from the immunotherapies that are usually in the media, particularly coming out of the US, like um, Keytruda, Optivo. Um, These are different because these are made with your white blood cells. So what happens is you have this process called apheresis, which is a I guess a little bit like dialysis, kind of a little bit like kidney dialysis. So you're connected to a machine that takes some of your blood, um, collects some of the white blood cells, and returns your blood to you. This is sort of you know just like a di- di- dialysis wow. mach- machine. And then uh-huh. this these white blood cells are taken away and put in a lab, and they go through a process to. Um, well, I'm having two types of immunotherapy. One is a, a, a cancer vaccine. So that means they take the dendritic cells and they use that to prime a vaccine and then inject you with this vaccine um, to try and teach your immune system to recognize the cancer. And the other one is using a type of white blood scale called NK cells. And over the three weeks in the lab, they basically grow more of your NK cells in kind of the ideal conditions and give them back to you in a drip so that those NK cells will go and attack the cancer tumors, but also that um, activates your immune system as well. So to try and give your immune system the sort of best chance of attacking those tumors. So NK cell therapy has been done in Japan I think for kind of more than 20 years now. But outside of Japan, it's not it's not very well known. And of course, because the treatment's made with your own blood, there's no kind of chance of rejection or side effects, really. So in a way, it's a, a very gentle treatment. Um, and immunotherapy, unlike chemotherapy and surgery and most radiotherapies, has a memory effect, which means that it protects you... Um, for possibly quite a few months after you've had the immunotherapy. So when people have immunotherapy and later on they're checking your uh, white blood cell numbers and activities, they generally find for sort of six months or so the the number and the activity of those white blood cells is is much higher. Um, so really, you know, it may, would actually make sense for immunotherapy to be given as a first-line treatment, people in those very early stages mm. of cancer. Um, so in, in the US, most of the um, new, news about immunotherapy has been focused on a different type, um, the so-called T-cell therapies. And the T-cell therapies, they're very, very powerful. So a single T-cell should be able to kill about a thousand cancer cells, whereas an NK cell can only kill about 30 cancer cells. But one of the problems with T cell immunotherapy is that after a while you get um, your, the cancer develops resistance to the immunotherapy so that the, the T cells can only target cancer cells with certain proteins on the surface. And of course, the cancer cells that happen not to make that 
protein, they're going to survive longer. NK cells can attack cancer cells that have proteins on and cancer cells that don't. So the um, the level of, of what's called immune resistance should be, you know, much, much less. So, but I mean, generally, it's a very exciting time for immunotherapies at the moment. Um, in the US this year, Keytruda was approved in July. Um, and that's a real kind of a game changer because Keytruda had been approved the previous year in uh, 2016. So Keytruda was approved for a couple of types of cancer. But in July this year, the Food and Drug Administration approved Keytruda for every cancer in adults if the patient has a certain genetic defect called microsatellite instability high, MSI high. Now, MSI only high, about right. 10% of cancer patients have that. And for um, stage four, it's actually lower, about 5%. Um, but it's the first time in the history of cancer treatment anywhere in the world that one drug has been approved for every cancer. So that, that mm -hmm. makes a huge difference because, you know, cancer is really probably you know, a combination of two things, genetic issues and also some kind of breakdown in the normal life and death cycle of cells, you know, obviously mainly involving the immune system. And yet cancer has been treated, you know, for 40 years, um, kind of ignoring those two things. <laughs> really yeah <laughs> so you know yeah. a, a shift towards focusing on the immune system and you know focusing on the the genetic aspect um that is you know that is a massive 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 change it's quite hard sure. you know there's so much hype around cancer treatments but this this seriously is um it, it will it will change everything now it, it might take some time but it really will change any, everything and in, in particular a lot of cancer research is going to have to be redone because the way that cancer drugs are tested on mice they're tested on something called a nude mouse and that's a mouse that's been specially bred to have no immune system because originally it was thought the, the immune system played kind of no role at all in cancer um at least it's no good role so it made sense to test on mice with no immune system so that you you know you'd get um you'd know that oh this is this is the chemotherapy drug doing it well because of that a lot of that research has to now be questioned <laughs> um <laughs> and you know hopefully you know redone and uh you know really change how how cancer treatment works i'm having um one other cancer treatment that i think is is also interesting which is called regional hypothermia so, you know, mm. with, with cancer, there's what's called the three pillars of cancer treatment. So that's surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation treatment. But, you know, there's, there's really, for quite a while now, there's been this fourth pillar that's not talked about much, which is hypothermia, which is using heat to treat cancer. And there's one, one form that's actually well-known, but we, we often forget that it's hypothermia, and that's called um, RFA or mfa so yes i've had rfa done to uh, uh metastasis in my yeah lungs. so rfa is uh, radio frequency ablation ablation is a, a fancy word for kind of just destroying <laughs> stuff so uh, you know it, in rfa you have um some kind of needle-like probes inserted into the tumors and then 
and those tumors are heated using radio frequencies and that heat um, damages the cancer cells. Um, now in the case of RFA, uh, it's actually very hot and it's sort of, you know, it's killing the cancer cells outright. In other types of hypothermia, the temperature is not so high. So uh, in the type of hypothermia I have, it's, it's uh, up to fever temperatures. And this seems to damage the cancer cells and cancer cells are bad at repairing. So, it, you know, damages to healthy cells too, but healthy cells, you know, repair themselves in a few hours. Cancer cells can't repair very well. But also it has some other interesting benefits. So the regional hypothermia, where you kind of heating an area of the body using, a, in, my, in my case, using radio frequency as well. Um, it's a, what's called a chemosensitizing treatment. So this is a very interesting area of cancer treatment. So chemotherapy is horrible and doesn't work particularly well for particularly terminal cancer patients. So if we can have other treatments that make the cancer cells more sensitive to chemotherapy, you know, that's fantastic. So, you know, with some chemotherapies, there are drugs that you can take along with the chemotherapy to make it more sensitive. Um, in the case of hypothermia, what happens is the the blood supply to those tumors is increased for about 24 hours afterwards. So if you can have hypothermia and then have your chemotherapy the next day, a lot more of the chemo agent should be getting into those tumors. Now that's really important because cancer tumors tend to have a poor blood supply. Particularly if you have terminal cancer, you often have big tumors and the big tumors have very, very poor blood supply. Um, it's one of the reasons why cancer loves to be in the liver because, you know, the liver is unique and it has two blood supplies. Liver is the only organ that, you know, the blood comes from arteries and also that, that big vein. So that's why, you know, cancer tumors love to be in the liver. So, yeah, hypothermia is a, is a very interesting um, treatment. And unfortunately, it's not really taught properly in, in medical schools as, a, as kind of its own kind of pillar of, of cancer treatment. So, for example, HIPEC. HIPEC includes hypothermia. So in HIPEC, you have this horrific 10-hour surgery, you know, which involves a surgeon um, taking out all your intestines and kind of going over inch by inch. Um, but also you have heated chemotherapy agent, and that's a form of hypothermia. So it's, it's really interesting that, you know, all the all the focus on cancer treatment tends to be on under improving the three pillars of cancer treatment, but really we have to say there are absolutely other significant pillars. Immunotherapy, um, you know, is 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 very very significant. Um, hypothermia therapy. There's now the whole area of of off label drugs. So this is where a drug that's been used to treat, let's say, diabetes. Um, people have been, you know, maybe someone's been uh, doing a clinical trial for chemotherapy and they notice a whole bunch of people, you know, lived much longer than they expected. And, you know, further questioning turns out these people all have diabetes. So possibly that diabetes drug is actually having a good effect on the cancer. So, yeah, there are all these other um, treatment pillars and if you have terminal cancer, you've got to find out about those and, and, and get access to, to the ones that are scientifically based, you know, where, where there's a good reason sure. to believe, you know, there's a, there's a strong mechanism. Because, you know, medical science is like the only branch of, of 
science where people routinely, scientists routinely give up on something that's believed to work. You know, pe people will have find a proposed mechanism for something, get some preclinical evidence, and maybe it will fail in the phase one trial, and they give up immediately because, um, you know, the, the economics of it, uh, it's, it's very, very hard to, to, you know, to go back to the drug company and say, you know, this didn't work, but we think it's worth putting some more money into. Um, it's bizarre. It's really right. bizarre. If you think about that, you know, we hit, you, you, you go back, um, let's go, go back like five years in the media, look at the, the new treatments that were coming out that, had good, you know, maybe in, in having kind of good phase two trials going into phase three. And many of them, you know, there'll just be a paper saying the results were disappointing. It was decided not to pursue this. It, it's it's a it's a very very strange way <laughs> of doing research. Um, but you know, the drug companies would argue that um, that's the only economic model that works. And if they didn't do that, there wouldn't be any um, you know drug research. So, for example, in the US, only about. 1% of research money for cancer is spent on immunotherapy. Um, seems in, in, incredible. Um, but yeah, that, that's the economics of it, really. Sure. Well, hopefully that part is changing. I want to shift over more to, to you and how your diseases impact you personally. You have a family. Yes, yeah, so I have uh, two kids. Um my son Edward is eight and my daughter Jessica's just turned four. So yeah, that's, um, how did you deliver the news to them? So, you know, my, my daughter Jessica doesn't really understand, obviously, you know, at, at the age of four, it's, you know, you're only just starting sure. to find out that people die. <laughs> um, you know, my son Edward, yes, he understands, but, um, you know, when, when you're under 10 years old, um, you don't really understand time in, in kind of the way that adults do, right? <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. You, you, know, you know three days, yesterday, yeah, today, and tomorrow. Absolutely. That's all you and, got. <laughs> and, you know, thinking about a year, you kind of have to think about when your birthday is and, and, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's you know, it's very difficult to, to sort of, you know, um, tell, tell your son that you might only have a few months to live. You know, it's not not so likely I'm going to be alive for his next birthday. Um, yeah, so I try to explain as much as possible to my son. He's fortunately he's very interested in science. So, you know, I explain all the, the scientific aspects. Um, there's, I guess there's a lot of pressure on him because, you know, I've, I've made it clear that he is going to have to really look after his sister when I'm not here anymore. Um, and you know, that's, that's a lot of, that's tough responsibility for, for an eight year old kid, right. To say that, you know, you're going to have to be like a father to your younger sister. Um, and I mean, the whole thing of telling my family was, was, was really, um, it was, you know, it's a, it's a very, very strange experience. <laughs> um, I, as I mentioned before, we had, when I when I went to have that colonoscopy, we were all due to go. What um, I think I had the colonoscopy on a Monday, and we were due to fly together to um, a Greek island on on the on the Friday. So when I found out it was cancer, um, 
we arranged for an aunt to come and um, stay with me while my parents and my wife and the two kids went off to Greece for a week. And it was during that week that I found it was terminal. So, you know, they're on this Greek island. I'm speaking to them, you know, every day, but I didn't tell them I'd found out it was terminal. Um, and as, as I said, you know, with colon cancer, the, the term used in, in British medical literature is it's eminently treatable. So even though, you know, I was devastated to find out I had cancer, when uh, when they left for the holiday, you know, it was sort of the idea was that, yeah, I was going to get treated for this cancer and cured and go on to live a normal life. So I arranged for a very close family friend to be there when they came back from the holiday. So, you know, you can imagine they've gone for for a week on a... Um, nice warm island. Um, they come back late in the evening. They came back at nine o'clock in the evening, and um, they come come home to my parents' house where we were staying. And uh, you know, they obviously know something's wrong because there's this this uh, very close family friend there, and I have to you know say to them that you know the the CT scan showed it's terminal. Um, so that was very very tough. And I had had um, a few days to kind of sort of come to the term terms of this terminal diagnosis and they were you know they were hearing it for the first time so that, that yeah that was very very tough and then it was around that time that I happened to speak to a doctor who was not part of my um treatment team and he told me about this thing called immunotherapy which I you know I'd never heard of um and he said oh you should really look into this and um, then I, you know, obviously I, I was diagnosed in the UK and there was that decision of, of, you know, do I stay in the UK with, with my parents and getting a completely free treatment in the UK or do I come to Japan? Now in, in Japan, there's the, um, the, the treatment in Japan is a national insurance scheme, which means the government, um, pay 70% of medical fees for standard treatment so it doesn't cover the new exciting things like immunotherapy all that has been crowdfunded and you know cancer has a a very significant financial impact even even if you're in a country with universal health care of which there are many um you know i think there are about 30 countries in the world now where healthcare is completely free for everybody but there's still a massive um impact because for example you know in, in my case for example uh, I'm a f- freelance worker you know I was I was um had uh doing my own um small businesses doing a, a business consulting and that kind of thing um so you know when you're in hospital and not working if you're freelance work <laughs> there's there's no income um mm-hmm. so that and and if, you know as you know with with cancer there's there's also a whole lot of medical related but non-medical expenses um, now in sure. the US, um, you know, it's, it's probably not right for me to comment on the US medical system, but yeah, there are some incredibly serious issues in the US. Um, oh, we all know, know that we we're we're well familiar. Yeah, with it. and and you know, the the figure you sometimes hear in the US is that if you have if you're diagnosed with terminal cancer in the US, if you have medical insurance, you may still need. If, if you're gonna if you're gonna live um you know to to uh like um what can i say if, if you do well you're gonna need a million dollars 
not a metaphorical million dollars, but a real million dollars. Um, so, yeah, that, you know, that the financial impact is, is kind of, that affects everything. It, it, it causes stress. It causes depression. Um, obviously, with terminal cancer, you have the worry of how is your, particularly if, if you're the, the, the main wage earner, you have the worry of how is your family going to, you know, to survive without you. Um, another thing with, you know, this, this it sounds trivial in the, in the grand scheme of things, but I was very, very upset to get a colostomy bag at the age of 38. Um, you know, I was, I was a you know, very active person with two young kids or whatever. Um, and, you know, to, to have that surgery, have the, the sigmoid colon removed and wake up with a colostomy bag. And, you know, I, I knew there was a risk of it. I hadn't, I hadn't realized how likely it was that I would get a colostomy bag because um, if the cancer spread to the peritoneum, there's a very, very big concern that if, if your colon is reconnected, um, you know, that's an ideal place for the cancer to come back. Um, so, yeah, I was devastated <laughs> to have that colostomy and sure. I still hate having a colostomy um, you know it's yeah the impact on your life with young kids and you know in, particularly in Japan where like have, in Japan having a, um, a bath and going to hot springs is like a really important part of the culture here and I kind of feel uncomfortable doing that kind of thing with with the colostomy bag so um, and of course, um, you know, when you have, have chemotherapy with, you know, terrible diarrhea or constipation or whatever, just taking care of, you know, colostomy is, is, is quite an issue. Um, sure. So there's those, those kind of impacts that, you know, there's, um, so, you know, apart from all the kind of emotional side of, you know, knowing that in, in all likelihood you're going to die quite soon, there's all the, all those kind of, you know, the, the the impacts that seem kind of trivial, but just the the little side effects of, of chemotherapy. So, I've had chemotherapy twenty eight times now, and you know one of the side effects I had never really heard about was um, uh, peeling nails. So mm-hmm. long long term use of five fu, your nails get very very weak. So you know now I'm, I'm con- continually kind of nails get ripped off and it's incredibly painful and annoying and um yeah. well, you know all the, all those kind of things or um you know people on chemotherapy love love to talk about the um the kind of the side effect that we all know is real but that the evidence is is still kind of lacking for chemo brain and mm-hmm. you know chemo brain is very very complicated um I've talked to lots of doctors about it and it's, you know, in all likelihood, it's, it's a, a combination of a whole bunch of symptoms that, you know, have mental impact. Um, a lot of it is probably just straightforward fatigue, you know, the mental impairment that comes from chemo induced fatigue. Um, and yeah, chemo brain is absolutely a, a very serious issue because, you know, what, what I find with, with chemo brain. So, um, f- sort of a couple of days after the chemotherapy is finished is when it really hits me, um, and that's because that's just because that's not a delayed side effect. It's just because when you have the chemotherapy, one of those drips is quite a powerful steroid, 
that lasts for a couple of days <laughs> and, right. and then that steroid's sure. wearing off after a couple of days. And the effect I get with chemo brain is in, in inability to take action. So, <laughs> so I know what I want to do, you know, maybe I'm lying in bed and I know it's time to get up or, um, I'm sat in a chair and I've got stuff to do. I've got to cook a meal for the family or whatever. And I know I want to do it. My conscious brain says, yep, yeah, get up, do this thing. And maybe 30 or four minutes, 30 or 40 minutes might pass before I can, I can physically get up and, and, and move. Um, and that's ridiculous. I think we all can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah. So the, the impact on me has been, has been, has been massive and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's that, yeah, that perfect storm of kind of, of physical side effects, emotional things, kind of cognitive issues, financial impact. Sure. Um, yeah, it's, you mentioned, you mentioned that there's a crowdfunding uh, campaign. Yeah. So, um, why don't you tell us about that in case any of the listeners, uh, want to jump in and uh, lend some, support? well, that'd be fantastic, but, but, you know, before that, I'd just say, whatever happens, start your crowdfunding immediately. Um, you know, like I said, that there's a massive financial impact, even if you're in a country with, with universal free medical care. Um, so start the, start the crowdfunding immediately um, because, you know, I think for me, it's, it's what's kept me alive um, to this point, right? Um, so my sister set up the crowdfunding as soon as I got the cancer diagnosis. And um, so far it has raised, um, I guess about $60,000 over a 14 month period. Um, and there are a whole bunch of different crowdfunding platforms. Um, like most people for medical stuff, I use a platform called GoFundMe. Um, other famous platforms are Indiegogo, which is very much associated with filmmaking, Kickstarter, which is very much associated with physical products. Um, one of the reasons that people like GoFundMe is that um, there's no end point. So you don't have to like set a, a final date. It's not like, you know, with Kickstarter, you're sent sets of a 30 day or a 60 day or 90 day goal. Um, right. With GoFundMe, it's kind of an ongoing thing because, you know, the medical, the cost of cancer doesn't just stop at a certain point, you know. Um, sure. If if you if you're fortunate and get a complete cure, you know, you might have to get back into work, for example. <laughs> um, so there's all that kind of impact. So um, my sister set up a GoFund a GoFundMe account. Um, I set up a web address pointing <clears throat> pointing to that. So. It's much easier. Sorry, much easier to remember. So, um, my web address is just my name. So it's www.matthewdons.org. It's m-a-t-t-h-e-w-d-o-n-s.org. So, when people visit their website address, it jumps them, you know, to the GoFundMe site, and you can make a donation there. You can, um, if you click on updates, you'll see my. Uh, uh, video updates and things. So I've been doing videos on YouTube. Um, and yeah, I'd recommend anyone with cancer to start crowdfunding immediately. Um, mm -hmm. because a, it's amazing to get donations, but also the, the emotional side of kind of, 
you know, 615 donations have come in from around the world. And obviously the vast majority of those people, I don't know those people. Um, wow. And it's it's an amazing feeling. Um, and the most moving ones, you know, I when I see names I don't recognize, I'll, you know, they'll Google that person. And sadly, you know, you sometimes find parents who, who lost a child to, to, to cancer and they're making, making a donation to you. And, you know, that's... Um, those are always the most um, emotional ones. Sure, um, and then sure. another thing I did was um, I wrote some uh, cancer tips. So I kind of I wrote a list of of all the tips, you know, that the things that I wished I had known at the beginning of of you know this uh, this horrific nightmare journey. So I, I wrote I wrote some t- a list of tips and I put it on Facebook and and that's that went viral on Facebook and I think kind of over twelve thousand people have now seen that which um you know is quite a lot for a serious Facebook post when when stupid stuff goes viral on Facebook you know you get hundred thousand exactly. <laughs> views but for, yeah. for something serious um and what's really nice is I've I've heard now of you know doctors and and in in the UK kind of printing it out to give to their patients. And um, wow, I heard a, a senior researcher in a cancer drugs company said, you know, it's was, it was the, the best bunch of tips he had seen. So then I also got um, a web address just to point to that um, set of cancer tips. So that web address is, is cancertips.xyz. Cancertips.xyz. So if anyone goes to... Um, those they'll see a list of of 10 cancer tips and that's a facebook post so you know it's great if they can share that on on facebook um and in there you know in in the cancer tips there's also a link to my fundraising page so you know i could if you like run through all those tips if you have time or i could just tell you tell you what i'll (laughs) actually what i'll do is i'll make it easy for the listeners is i will post the links both to the GoFundMe and the Cancer Tips site in the show that, notes for this fantastic. episode Thank under, you. under the under the coloncancerpodcast.com forward slash zero eight two. And uh, that's where our listeners can find uh, both the GoFundMe link as well as the cancer tips.xyz. Yes. Well, Matthew, uh, I, I want to wish you, uh, you know, the best, and I know you're taking it day by day. Uh, most importantly, you've shared a lot of good advice for our listeners and have opened our eyes to some uh, possible therapies while they may not be available here in the U.S., but worth re- looking into and researching uh, that, that may help other people down the road. And I really do appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. It's It's been really great to talk to you. And uh you know, maybe we'll do another episode in the future. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to that. Uh, that that works that works for me, and uh, and uh, you know, the only person that uh, would like to see that more than uh, you know more than you, uh, I mean, uh, you know, more than us listening is I know you and your family, and we hope that that does happen for you. We really do. So I wish you all the best, and thank, thank you. you so much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast, and thank you to our sponsor, H2ORS. The Colon Cancer Podcast is a proud sponsor of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from this episode can be found on our website at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, on iTunes, or on the Stitcher app for listeners using an Android device. If you or a loved one has a question about colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at www.ccalliance.org. Again, that's www.ccalliance.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at the colon cancer Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.